to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer, bassist, and composer Janice Marie Johnson most famous for being an upfront member of the group A Taste of Honey. Emerging during disco music's late 1970s peak, A Taste of Honey notched a pair of number one hits, the dance floor-geared Boogie Oogie Oogie and the Mellow Sukiyaki, as well as three other top 20 R&B singles. Having won the Grammy Award as 1978's Best New Artist, the group went on to release five albums through 1984. Johnson also recorded with Lionel Richie, released a solo album in 1999, and later worked with Confunction's Felton Pilot, and she continues to perform today. Janice, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. You've done a little research. I try, you know. You got, you got a few things off with Confunction. We've been working together since 1973. Whoa. Yeah, see. Oh, That's, that's well. before, before fun, before all of the record deals. Yeah, we were... We had the same management back in the early 70s. Okay. Was it still Phil back then? or? Uh, back then it was Charles, Charles Brown. 
Phil, okay. Phil was probably still in high school. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was a young manager by the name of Charles Brown. I'm trying to see where the camera is. Oh, there it is. It's there. I should be looking. Yeah, no, a guy by the name of Charles Brown. We were in Tokyo together. They played the Mugen. And we were actually there doing the uh, USO tour and the Yamaha Tokyo Music Festival. Wow. So were you uh, surprised when they blew up like they did? Why would I be surprised? They were overdue to blow up. All the songs I know that they had even before Fun came out. No, 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 no. I'm not surprised. But, yeah. you know, people tend to call people an overnight success. They don't realize we've been putting a lot of years in trying to get to this point. No, I was not surprised. Just very happy. And yeah. we got a chance to tour with them in 78. So, you know, that was big fun. Wow. Yeah, there's doubling the fun. Fun with yes, fun. Indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Wow. Well, thank you for joining the program. And where are you coming to us from today? I'm out in Temple City, California. Where is Temple City? Okay, Santa Anita Racetrack. That's where I am. Oh, okay. Do you play the horses? <laughs> no, I'm a Capricorn. I don't gamble. <laughs> Not like that anyway. Actually, I saw, I think we both had birthdays last week. So belated happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday to you too. Yes, my birthday and my son's birthday was January 18th. Best oh. birthday present ever. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah, well, I'm the 21st, so pretty close. Okay, so you're an uh, Aquarian? Yeah. yeah. That says a lot about your heart, if you believe all that stuff. I only believe what I want to believe at the time, that it, um, what I'm looking for. The support I'm looking for. I read the horoscope. Oh, yeah, that's me. I'll take all of that. Oh, no, that's not me. I don't want that. <laughs> that's somebody else. <laughs> That works for me. Pick and choose. Hey, you have choices, right? Smart yeah. choices. It looks like you got a little bit of a home studio or something going on there. Where are we looking? Oh, at? yeah. It's it's where I work. You know, we rehearse in here. It's a pretty big room. You know, we've got the boards and monitors over there. We've got the fireplace and the drums right there. We've got amps and guitars over there. Yeah, this is, this is our little workout room. All right. Um, and so you uh, also play keyboards and other instruments as well? Oh, I, I write on them. I don't play them live on stage. The only instrument I play on live on stage, I think, other than the bass is a guitar, acoustic guitar, because I do write songs on the acoustic guitar. In fact, you had mentioned the 99 release. There's an album called Hiatus of the Heart, and I'm playing guitar on that. But I, you know, I stick pretty close to bass, but I do write on the guitar, and I write on keyboards. And Koto. Uh, yeah so, there's a sukiyaki type of sound yeah um so are you from los angeles originally or where did you grow up and how did you first uh move toward music in the bass oh that's a loaded question that's going to take the whole hour okay <laughs> yes i was born and raised in los angeles california where did i grow up i grew up all over los angeles now i'm one of those artists that uh let me get this right i moved 16 times by the time I was 24 is it 24 times by the time I was 16 I had to start counting so I went to you know two kindergartens two first grades two second grades third grade four high schools blah 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 moving all over the place so when I say I literally grew up all over Los Angeles I grew up all over Los Angeles and I got into music because my father was into music in fact when my mother met him he was a singer and keyboard player in a band and that's how she met him. But he passed on when I was seven. 
but before then he had already instilled all of the music in us. He, he, he would build stages and we'd sing uh, Dakota Staten, Nancy Wilson, you know, in our living room whenever there was a family event over. So that's how it got started. But, um, you know, we had our own singing groups. When I say we, I mean, my sister Sharon and I had our own singing groups, did backyard talent shows, so forth and so on. And then when I was in the fifth grade, we were going to St. Cecilia's here in Los Angeles. And there's an announcement that said there is a after school workshop for music, drama, dance, karate, sign up after school. I went flying over there and I remember the lady standing at the door. We called her Mother Blunt back then. And I said, can you make me a star? Can you make me a star? And she said, well, let me see what you can do. So my sister and I stood up there and we were singing, stop in the name of love before you. She said, okay, you're in. So that's where it really started because Mother Sheen took us under her wing and she helped rehearse us. She got us voice lessons with Howlett Smith. Howlett Smith, you may not know, but Howlett Smith is uh, a songwriter, composer, keyboard, keyboardist, uh, piano player. He wrote, uh, let's go where the grass is greener. Grass is greener by uh, Nancy Wilson. He wrote Spanky Wilson. He wrote Little Ultra Boy. Hmm. And so at 10 and 11 years old, my singing group, which was four to five, depending on how many girls were around at the time, he would do that tight, tight harmony for us. So he trained our ear early and mother mother blunt I, she's, she's mother sheen now blunt was her her, her uh, married name but she's back to her maiden name and she planned um gigs for us we worked at marla gibbs uh, uh memory lane before it belonged to marla gibbs you know at 12 13 years old we were gigging all over town memory lane she even booked us with uh, miles davis Okay, at 12 years old, I'm performing with Miles Davis at Marty's on the Hill. I didn't know who Miles Davis was, just some guy with a, with a, uh, a trumpet, right? <laughs> so later we go back. So then we ended up going all over the country performing. And when that group finally broke up, now you can keep this in mind that I started with her when I was 10. Okay, and ooh, 10, eight years later is when I went to to college and uh, nine years later when we formed a taste of honey so all through that time my singing group was sound stage number one with uh i'm gonna call her mother sheen because that's the current name mother sheen uh she sponsored paid for everything trained everybody uh but she went on in 1971 to form a school here in los angeles sheenway school and culture center um and i went on to form a taste of honey but I want you to look up SheenwaySchools.org because I'm also, now keep in mind that was 1971. I'm currently Sheen Educational Foundation's president and have been for quite some time now. And the difference she made in my life, we're making in the lives of the people in the neighborhood. I wow. actually teach Nihon Buyo there. Anything I learn, I teach the kids. You know, take what you can. I don't know, I'm not the best at it, but I'm giving you what I have. So, and we have many performances. We were the first Black uh, Japanese dance troupe to perform in Nisei Week back in 1981. I'm just, I've been teaching there for a while. So I teach when I can, you know, in between. I don't have a definite teach schedule because we rotate teaching schedule. We rotate different people in. But they have dance, uh, dance classes, karate, ballet, modern dance, gymnastics, singing, music, you know, you name it, cooking. We have everything there. That's a lot. I told you that was a winded answer, right? Uh, that's beautiful, though, bringing it full circle like that. You know? You. Um, 
And, and, and at what point did you gravitate toward bass? In high school. My last year of high school, I remember there was a song by The Temptations, Just My Imagination. And I remember trying to play that on bass. I thought it was pretty simple. And then, here we go again, Mother Sheen had our group audition for uh, Princess Cruises, the cruise line. And we were going to a rehearsal with the band that we were going to use for our audition. See, you know how to tie these stories together. And it was at that audition that one of the band members of the band was a guy named Perry Kibble, who played bass. And they became our backup band. We never did do the Princess, uh, Princess Cruise audition, but we did get a band and they went on the road with us to Colorado and Montana. And so once again, this is still 1971. So at the end of that tour in Montana is when she went on to form Sheenway and I went on with Perry to form A Taste of Honey. Funny how that came back around there. Perry Kibble, did you know that name when I said it? I know you did. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. a member of the band. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so an, important, an important started, member. A very important member. I actually started bass right then and there in, in 71, 72. And, you know, Perry and I gigged all over town. We call it gigging. We hit every free talent show they had. <laughs> we had the Monday night. We, we were gigging four days a week. We had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, Friday, whatever days it was, talent shows. And I knew three songs. Let's Stay Together, It's Your Thing, and I Feel the Earth Move. And we played those three songs over and over and over again. And then I had the bright idea. I said, Perry, we need a guitar player. I know the perfect guitar player. So I went over to one of the young ladies that was actually in the singing group, um, soundstage number one, Carlita. And I asked her to play guitar with us. And she said, fantastic. And the only problem was she didn't know how to play guitar, but she'd be a great guitar player. So Perry taught her how to play guitar. So he was, when you say he's important, he was more than important. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you guys also did some overseas uh, playing and performing before getting a record deal. Is that right? Oh, yeah. We started performing overseas uh, via USO or the, the Navy Department of Defense. We've performed in 73. I remember I dropped out of uh, college to go on the road. Um, started off in Japan or we started off in Korea. I think it was Korea, the Philippines, Guam, Thailand, Taiwan, Okinawa. Uh, Morocco, Spain. I mean, we traveled quite a bit. We did that for a few years, actually kept going back. But we got smarter when we went back. First time we went, we were like, I don't know, just, I don't know what the military ranking is, but we were low end. We did not have any telephones in our room. There's a community shower. We were just like enlisted, a a drafted military men. Not even being listed, they get treated a little differently. But by the time we came back around the second time, we knew what to ask for. You don't ask, and this is about life in general. You don't ask, you don't get. We knew then someone pulled our coattail. One of the brothers in the mess hall said, how come you guys aren't sitting uh, over there in the officer's quarters? GS-15, we didn't ask. So the second time we went back, and every time thereafter, we went back as general generals. We stayed in the officer's quarters we had telephones we could make phone calls we had great meals so you don't know what to ask for you don't ask so we asked and we got yeah that was a big difference too big difference in how we were treated so ask and that was like the mid 70s no 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 that was 1970 72 73 
And we went on to play the military through 1975, I think was our last military tour. And we ended up in Morocco. <laughs> okay, we got kicked out of Morocco. A taste of honey. Kicked out of Morocco before we performed on the military base. Nothing to do with the ladies, all about the guys and the girls and the Marines and, and the Marines girls and the Taste of Honey's guys messing with the wrong girl. Big riot on the base, blah, 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 blah. Out we were put. Had to go to Spain and, <laughs> and wait for a gig. So, no, we started early on. But, you know, it's funny. I forgot about that. Some of those earlier gigs have the most incredible memories. We were young. I won't say young and dumb, but just young and not knowing as much as we know now. And when did the band uh, get that name, A Taste of Honey? Oh, funny you should ask. Now, the name A Taste of Honey is actually the name of a singing group I was in that was the predecessor to the band A Taste of Honey. And it, Perry Kibble was involved in that. So when A Taste of Honey broke up, uh, when Soundstage Number 1 disbanded, in 71, Perry and I went on to, to work together writing original songs. And there's a Lewis Hendricks was a guy he played in the, uh, the exits back in the old days. And he uh, and two other, one other young lady and another guy, we formed a band, a group, singing group. And Perry would, you know, arrange the music for us. We were trying to get a record deal as a vocal group. But after about two or three months, and that group was called The Taste of Honey. And the guy, Smokey, that was one of the singers in the group, God rest his soul. He's the one who thought of the name of Taste of Honey. So after that group disbanded and Perry and I went on to form the band, we just, I just kept the name. I liked it. So we kept it. Was it influenced by the Herb Alpert song or nothing to do with that? That's an assumption. And it could very well be, but Smokey's not here to ask. Right. Mm -hmm. So everyone has always assumed that I didn't come up with the name. Perry didn't come up with the name. It was my group. I just kept the name and went on to, to in the band. But I don't really know that. I would assume that I don't know if anyone was saying a taste of honey because, you know, other than the movie, something had to make that phrase popular. So it, it could have it been that, but I can't guarantee it. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my life on it. Well, see, I wouldn't I recommend you either. I know I had heard that, and rather than taking it as gospel, I wanted to ask you to be sure because who right. knows, you know? You never know because it could have just been um, Smokey telling his wife, Hey, give me a taste of honey for my coffee. And he said, Oh, great name. Or it could have been the movie, it could have been the song. I, I have no idea. Yeah. And that, well, anyway, you, you and, and the group personified it. Uh, and, and I think, at least in my mind, better known at this point than the origin if it was that song in her album. Right. So. I, I could see where people would assume that. And it may be, they may be right. So uh, Janice, as you were doing all this with the USO shows and all that, I'm sure you were really honing your craft and I'm, I'm assuming that you were really uh, sort of uh, developing, you know, your stage presence and your playing ability and all that good stuff. How did you feel like, you came into your own that way. Well, now, as far as developing my stage personality, so forth, back when I was in the singing group uh, under the direction of uh, Mother Sheen from the Sheenway School and Cultural Center, I was pretty shy. You know, just on stage, I'm this big, 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 
dancing girl off stage. I'm quiet. I don't say anything. But my onstage presence came from working with Mother Sheen from the Sheen Way School and Culture Center as a child because we would perform, you know, every backyard, barbecue, any place that she can get us to perform. We finally started getting booked in Marty's on the Hill where we got booked with Miles Davis and um, a, a lot of different uh, private shows and memory lane and all of that. But Mother Sheen in rehearsal, we're doing our routine. She said, make it bigger, make it bigger. How's anybody in the back gonna see you? Make it bigger. Come on, make it bigger, bye, bye. So you smile, nobody wants, you're gonna be mad. Are you mad on stage? Who are you mad at? So all of that kind of stuff, is, it stays with you. So I would say that between Mother Sheen and after I, uh, when Sukiyaki came out, I have to give some credit to Winston Butler. Now Winston Butler was the theater director, the head of the theater department at Los Angeles City College, but he was also our, um, show production manager. He worked with the uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. He worked with Confunction. He worked with. He worked a lot with uh, uh, Jeffrey Osborne. Right about the same time, because here's what's happening. What does Jeffrey do when he when he's not behind drums? Right. So we don't know what to do with our hands. Right. I'm playing bass. It's like, oh man, I forgot. I got to do something. I have to do something. And so between. Uh, after I put my bass down, Winston Butler became very important. And if you look at the early versions of Sukiyaki, like on television, I was very stiff. You know, I should be flowing, right? Even with the dancing that I was doing with the Japanese fan dance, I used to do. <clears throat> now it's just flows through because time does that to you instead of here and then there, you know. So, but the stage presence comes from the influences from Mother Sheen and from Winston Butler and just my regular personality. I'm a big ham, you know, on stage. I'm a big, I love the stage. So you don't have to tell me twice to do it bigger. I, I want to do it bigger, but I didn't want anyone else to look smaller. And I would get that too. Stop doing so much so that we don't look so small. And my, my reality is, uh, why should I do that? Why don't you do more? So yeah, that is. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> And how excited and, and freaked out maybe were you when you guys landed that record deal? You know, we have been searching since the formation of the group, A Taste of Honey, in 71 for a record deal. We didn't get it with that group. So how excited were we? We were on cloud nine. Are you kidding? We were on cloud nine. So excited. I don't recall, but I'm sure we celebrated as a group and as individuals. Yeah, it was a very exciting time. And, and in much- fact, you know, there were a lot of people, we were playing at the Et Cetera Club, and A&M Records was right across the, the street from us, literally across the street from the club. And that's back in the days when a band owned the club, meaning that not legally owned it, but that was our club. We worked there five days a week for over a year. Now they have five or six bands, and one night you paid them. You had to sell tickets to get it. It's a whole different thing. But A&M was right across the record, uh, right across the street from the club, and they never gave us a record deal. They came there, came backstage, talked to us. <laughs> but Larkin, Larkin Arnold took the chance. He was pretty nervous about signing us, too, because I remember he asked us, now, you guys think you can play what's on the record when you get on the stage? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> it's like, Larkin, we played the record. We can play the stage. <laughs> Yeah. 
How, how many original tracks did you have at the point of signing? You know, I'm assuming you had some that ended up on the record. Well, let's say we probably had about four or 500 tracks. You know, anytime you've been trying to get a record deal for 10 years, by the time you get one, all those songs you had, I don't know how many tracks you probably had. I mean, I, I don't really know because everyone has a multitude of individual songs that they've written by themselves. We have group songs, so... I don't know, but I will tell you this that you may not know. You ready? I'm ready. Oogie 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 was the last song added to that album. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You may not be talking to me now if that song hadn't been added. <laughs> what were they saying? We still need a killer single, so we got to add something else, or how did that happen? Nope. nope. It just happened. We were performing while we were recording the record. Uh, with Larry and Fonz Mizell, we were still gigging, and Taste of Honey had worked at a uh, a um, airbase. <clears throat> I don't say March airbase, and we had performed there many times through the years, but we had never performed there with Hazel. And we had learned all the top forty songs. So we get to the stage and we go to do the because Carlita Doran was with the Taste of Honey about five years. She was the original guitar player. She was the one that Perry taught to play guitar. And she was in A Taste of Honey up until 19, in the 76, first part of, in, in the 76, I think it was. So, And I think it was 77 that we had performed out at the uh, airbase. And people were just looking. They weren't dancing. We were saying, what's going on? Why aren't you dancing? So, you know, I got a little attitude. I said, we're, we're, keep in mind, we're recording the record at this time. I put my hand on my hip. Never could get my neck to go side to side. But I said, if you're thinking you're too cool to boogie, we've got news for you. Everyone here tonight must boogie, and you are no exception to the rule. So get on up on the floor, because we're going to boogie, oogie, oogie till you just can't boogie no more. And people got on the stage, and I don't know what song we started, some dance song. But fortunately, I recorded the song that night. And I was listening back to it in the hotel room. And had I not recorded that song, we might not have had Boogie Oogie Oogie. So I called Perry up. I said, Perry, come check this out. And he said, hey, yeah, I'm hearing this. I'm hearing that. Let me put the keyboard right there. How about this guitar part? I said, yeah. So that's how that happened. And we had already recorded, I don't know, eight of nine songs or seven or eight. I don't even remember. don't remember how many are on the first album. But yeah. This is one of the last ones we added. The last one we added. Wow, like a strike, a stroke of magic or something. Just you know, that's just that's just God at work. You know, that's all. That's all. I, I didn't even write that song by myself. It just came through me, right? Like just like Sukiyaki. How do you write a song like that? It comes through you. When when you finished Boogie Oogie Oogie, did you think it was going to be a hit immediately, or were you like, oh, it's pretty good. We'll have to see. Or how'd you feel about it? Well. We loved it, but we couldn't get a reading from the record company because we went in there to play the record. I mean, Larkin Arnold is sitting at his desk and Boogie is playing. And he's sitting there just. But I looked under the desk at his feet. <laughs> <laughs> and his feet were tapping outside, going crazy. So I said, okay, we got him. We got him. So I didn't know he knew. You know, they didn't want us to get too excited, perhaps, but Larkin knew, and Larkin wasn't going to not uh, do what he could do to promote it, to make it a hit, and that he did a lot of promotion on that. First two weeks, Boogie played every hour on the hour, uh, WBLS New York. How about that? 
Wow. How'd you feel when you first heard yourself on the radio? I almost had an accident. Are you kidding? <laughs> Driving along with my little, uh, I had a, a, a stick fifth, a 1967, a 1970 Volvo. I love those old line cars. And I almost had an accident. I remember that. We had to pull over to the side of the curve and just turn it all the way up. <laughs> that was quite exciting. Yes, very much so. So you heard on the radio before hearing it in a club, let's say? Oh, absolutely. We didn't go to clubs at that point. We were too busy rehearsing, getting ready, writing the songs. We weren't, we weren't doing the clubs anymore. By the time the record came out, we were preparing whew, to go on tour with the Commodores and Confunction and Jeffrey Osborne. Wow. So when this thing took off and became a hit, I mean, how did it, I mean, it changed your life overnight, I'm sure. Um, how did you sort of take it in stride or how, how did you deal with that? Well, let's just say I had a permanent neck ache from trying to hold everyone down and together. <laughs> Keep in mind, we didn't have management when it came out. So we were like all of the way. We got a big hit. Somebody wants to go back and do, produce more records. The other one wants to get some other groups to record them. I want to be a producer over here and, the drummer wants to do this, and I'm like, a taste of honey. I'm the original. I'm the one. Let's just do a taste of honey, guy. Let's just do what we came here for. So it got a little crazy. It, it's really stressful because we went from the Et cetera Club, where we had, uh, I think it was Perry's cousins handling the equipment. They'd bring, it, bring in the instruments and set it up. And we were there, like I said, five nights a week. You set it up and it's through. But we're in a different league now, right? So you have to get your stuff set up in 15 minutes. Get it on stage, get it ready to go. Our guys were not qualified, simply not qualified. I remember one time they actually pushed the organ onto the floor and busted the organ. Mm. You know, just, just, they weren't ready to move at that speed. We love you to death, but you know, I'm telling the truth. And had it not been for our dear friends, Confunction, their, their, uh, Stanley and their, their, uh, Gary at their kick helped us throughout that tour until we can get new techs in there that were the level that we needed them to be because we lost all kind of equipment on that tour that was a crazy crazy first couple of months of going to a level with no management and not knowing what to expect we had never been in that arena before other than to go see someone else perform you don't know what goes on behind the scenes right you got 20 minutes get on get off so it was uh, it was it was an exciting time though it really was how was the uh, image and persona of the act and entity, a taste of honey sort of developed, you know, because obviously, you know, you were in the cover image, you know, in the gowns, very sophisticated, glamorous, beautiful two women up front, you know, how did, how did that sort of develop? That developed uh, because our initial goal, one of the initial goals, we were show band. We're a show group. That's why you people say, oh, you're a bass player. Yeah, I'm a bass player. I play guitar. I do dancing. I do Nuhyambuyu. I do tap dance. I do ballet. I do a lot of stuff. I'm not a typical musician because I'm a show girl. You know, I'll take that bass off and pick my string bass up. Or I'll put the acoustic guitar. Or I'll do a, a tap dance if it calls for it. If I could tap dance and play my bass at the same time, if I could figure that out, I'd be doing that because I'm a show girl. So in being a show girl, that changes your wardrobe. And we were, you know... We, Mother Sheen would take us to Vegas to see different shows. In fact, I saw uh, the New Christian Minstrels there. That's back, uh, I don't know whether you know that um, 
Kenny Rogers actually had three careers. He was a bass player in the Luke History Minstrels in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So we would go to Vegas. He'd take us to Vegas to see the Vegas show. So the goal was to be like a Vegas act. So that's where the gowns and things came in. We were, that, that was our initial goal. And then we switched to one the record deal. <laughs> but we were still in the mindset of the gowns. And, you know, I like that. I still like that. I, girls like to dress up. We like to dress up. And what can you share about the the chemistry of the of the group? You know, with Hazel and what you know at that time. You know, what was it like within the group? When Boogie came out. When yeah, Boogie I, came out, everybody was best of friends. Now. Well, like the first the first couple, say the first two records. You know that. Well, the, the first two records, well, actually the chemistry changed because you know Perry and Don left. So out there on the road with the Commodores, uh, like I mentioned, we didn't have the proper management. So we called in and we got a road manager to come out. And the people, the person that they got a, a, to manage us on the road came from Stevie Nick's camp. So when they came in, Stevie Nick's, when they came from that camp, I won't mention his name, Bill, uh, but he brought in some habits that our group had not known nothing about. And it got hold of a, a couple of people and it changes the chemistry. You know, uh, that's all I can, I'm not going to, that's their story to tell. But my story is that if you don't want to do this, you don't have to do it. You're more than welcome to do something else. So, but you know, drugs got in there with a couple of the members and it became a problem, it became mm-hmm. a problem. And they were imported, might I add, <laughs> from other acts. So, but the chemistry, as far as Don Perry and myself, it was great, even with Hazel. The difference with Hazel is that Hazel was a newcomer. I was friends with Carlito. Hazel is a, a, a colleague. And we tried to be friends. We tried our best to, 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 to be friends. We had a united front. And Hazel even lived with me for over a year. But we were just colleagues. You know, to mm-hmm. be honest, Perry, Don, and I were really good friends. We had been together for, what, five years, almost before Hazel came. But Hazel and I had a special chemistry. If you listen to some of the songs that we wrote, I mean, it was so great to have a girl in the band that was going to stay for a while because Carlita had quit twice. So, and that makes you kind of leery. Actually, in between one of her times quitting, we pulled on a guitar player named Elaine Mayo, who actually came from Shaka's camp. Mm. Now, Elaine Mayo's the baddest female guitar player I ever heard, but she's got a different background. There's no way you're going to put her in a gown. Not going to happen. <laughs> but uh, between Hazel and I, it was really great. It was really great until we got to the end of the uh, 82 when she, she left. Um, but when, like I said, anytime you get some kind of drugs involved and everybody's not on drugs, it's an issue. Sure. And it became an issue. And by the end of the second album, it became a big issue. And that's why it just ended up with Hazel and I. Did the two of you feel like um, you had really something to prove because, you know, you weren't, you were atypical, you know, for what was out certainly at that time and still to some extent today being, you know, uh, instrument playing women up front, you know, did you feel like, Hey, we have to really prove ourselves and, and then knock them out. Well, I didn't think that way. I just figured I'm going to do the best that I can. Either you guys like it or you don't. Take it or leave it. Now, there have been a lot of people that have questioned 
whether we're really playing our instruments in the early days. And some people to this day, they come to the concerts and they say, I didn't realize you were the bass player. I thought you guys were just on the cover. That was just a prop. No. So, I mean, a lot of people had issues with the females playing, you know, and they'll say things like, well, you play great for a girl. You play great for a woman, you know. And I went through that from the beginning of playing bass. You know, when I was in college, I played string bass. And the day that uh, Mr. Desario, bless his heart, he came in the room and he said, well, how many bass players? And we raised our hand. I mean, I made sure I got back there near one of the bass. The problem is there were 11 people who wanted to play bass, but there were 10 bass. And so he said, look, one of you, and, but I was the only female who wanted to play bass, string bass. So he said, look, one of you going to have to switch to another instrument. There are only 10 bass in the whole school. So one of you going to have to play something else. So what do you think? Every guy turned around and looked at me like I'm the one who's not supposed to play bass. Mm. So, yeah, we ran into that. Well, you're a girl. What do you need to play bass? You can play this. I said, look, this is my main instrument. And it's so funny because there are people in that class that their main instrument were keyboards or uh, violin or some other. They played some other instrument. So long story short, I've been fighting uh, just to have my space as a female uh, bass player. And I run into issues even today with just getting my bass amp. You know, where's my bass amp? It's on my rider. Well, we're going to let you use the same one that the other guy's using. No, that's fine. I don't mind sharing. But here's what you're going to do. You're going to take my bass amp from next to that hi-hat, which is where bass players play, and pull it up front. I'm not a bass player. I'm an artist that plays bass. So I need my bass amp where I can feel it, where I can hear it, where I can feel the punch. So it's on my rider, my bass amp. A lot of people say, oh, the bass player, one bass player, what F do? So that, that's still a battle sometimes. So <laughs> that, That's not even over yet. That battle's ongoing. So. But did, yeah, it's always been people question whether we really played or you really did that. But, you know, that's their issue. That's not mine. Right. Yeah. Blowing preconceived notions. And uh, yeah. Did you, do you feel like you were, you know, maybe you've gotten credit for this. I think you should um, sort of a, a trailblazer, if you will, for, you know, acts like climax that came and, and people like that. You know, it's, it's interesting. You should say that because I run into a, a, a few female bass players. Um, God, star. I can't think star colors or something like yeah, that. I ran star into colors. her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ran into her at the NAMM show. Oh, God, that had to be maybe 10 years ago now. And I was coming out of the uh, string booth. I think it was Dean Martin strings because uh, I was checking out Bobby Watson, who was playing in there with a few guys, you know, a little hot, tiny pinch. You know, you can only have so much volume in that place. So I was coming out of that room. When I came out, Star was, was weird, like passing like that. And she said, Taylor Sweet Johnson, Taylor Sweet Johnson. And she fainted. Wow. She hit the floor. And I'm thinking, I said, under this thin carpet is cement. And I'm reaching down. I said, get up. Are you all right? She said, oh, Jennifer Johnson. I said, oh, my Lord. So I matter to more people than I realized. And I ended up interviewing Star later for another program. And she's, she's so good, so cool. And then I ran into Michelle. She was singing, uh, speaking. I think it was, uh, I don't know if it's BMI, some of uh, uh form that they had where women in the industry were speaking to other women. I said, I'm going to go down. I just want to see the bass player, Michelle, right? So I go down there 
and I'm listening to people talk, and she's saying, well, you know, I don't really care about uh, record sales. I don't care about that. I just want you to come to my concert. That's, that's the main thing. I said, well, that's an interesting thing. If you don't care about that, give the record away. Just get them to come down there to the concert. I said, well, that will sell out your concerts, all right. But then, so afterwards, they have a meet and greet thing, and I'm just talking to whoever it was I went there without only recall, and she says, Jennifer Johnson. I play bass because of you, you know? And then we run into, I got a call from the museum, the first national, the National Museum of African-American Music. It opened up uh, through the pandemic in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a 10,000 uh, square foot facility, brand new. It's all of the best African music, African-American music. Anybody, everybody's there. My original bass is there. My first, my dress for my album cover. Smithsonian didn't ask me for anything. <laughs> they did <laughs> so but um um her was going through there and i got a call from the museum that person who had called me um uh she said i have a story to share with you and she said to me that her came through a private showing and she was coming through and then she said she went all the way through the museum but when she got to my display a taste of honey display with the bass and the dress and she said oh no stop we got to take a picture of this stop right here stop right here she said she's another she's the reason i'm playing bass and they said well did you ever meet her and she said no i've never met her but i did meet her she doesn't know she's been to my house when she was a child and she was performing her father brought her there don't want it if consumption just doesn't come back around again. So Felton was at my house doing a, uh, a recording session on uh, one of his artists. And he had a meeting with her dad and stuff. So they came to the house and had a meeting. And I met her. She doesn't remember. But, uh, but she knew I played bass. The stuff was all around so forth and so on. But I will remind her when I meet her, I am putting in the universe that her and A Taste of Honey will be playing together in a concert in the not too distant future. Wouldn't that be great? Absolutely. How awesome is that? Gosh, that's yeah. got to make you feel so good to know oh. you've had that kind of influence and effect. It does. And it's, you know, and I get emails and people hit me up on Instagram saying the same kind of thing. And I'm just blown away. And even men, we're not just talking women. We're talking men that were inspired. I played my first bass line I played was the boogie, oogie, oogie, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I am just, I'm honored, really. I'm honored because I won't say this. So you didn't hear it from me. But I'm not really a bass player. I'm an entertainer that plays bass. I'm an entertainer mm -hmm. that dances. I'm an entertainer that sings. I'm an entertainer that does a lot of things. Bass is my favorite instrument. And I, I love the bass. But. If bass were all that I do, I'll probably be playing like Marcus Miller. <laughs> <laughs> but to sing and play, I didn't know how hard it was to sing and play. A lot of bass players say, how do you do that? You're doing a completely different thing than what, you, than what you're singing. I didn't know bass players didn't do that. Because if you keep in mind, when I had the singing group, I was singing. So then I added the bass on top of it. I thought that all bass players sang. When I started playing bass, it never dawned on me that it was going to be difficult. So I didn't look at it that way. But what I did learn, and I tell people my secret, get the bass line first. Get that first. And then lay the melody and stuff on top of it. So, But I, I get that question a lot. How do you do that? Now, some songs are more challenging than others, I admit. But nothing's impossible. Yeah. Well, there's a tip right there to master it like you did, for sure. 
I don't know about master, but you know. No, but I mean the combination, the combination of it, you know, mastering that. Well, yeah, yeah, well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Now, if I miss a note because I'm playing and I'm singing and something's off and I just my brain is not coordinating because you're singing completely different than you than you're playing. If I miss something, just throw a lot leg out. They'll forgive me. <laughs> just take a pose, right? Like I'm doing the best I can, guys. I make it look easy, but trust me, it's not. They yeah. look like second nature. You know, some songs after doing it so long become second nature. But That's about being a seasoned uh, performer and professional right there. Well, it, it does take time. Yeah. It does take time. Um, Janice, on that first album, um, did, did you feel like the label did all they could for you guys? Because there wasn't really another song that hit like, you know, that one did. Even though, you know, I thought tracks like Distant, you know, were really strong and um, well, here's I, I, here's the funny you should mention distant um, Ice Cube sampled that for Gangsta's Fairy Tale too. No, to answer your question, the record company did not do everything that they could do, and the reason is is that the person who brought us in that would have gotten credit for doing all that he could do and, and making another record big off of our album, Mark and Arnold, quit <laughs> after Boogie was released. He quit. You can't blame him because you think about it. He brought in Natalie Cole. He brought in Maze. He brought in Minnie Ripken and all those other big people. It was his time to move on to promote to, to promote his own career. And so he did. He went on to Aristic. I think it was Michael Jackson or someone was over there at the time. And he got a better deal, a piece of the action, blah, 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 blah. But the, after Larkin left, the A&R department was empty for at least nine months. Mm. There was no one there. No one cared. And then when they brought a new person in, they brought in, who did they bring in? I don't know who first, maybe Dr. Cecil Hale. Right. Um, I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't worried about a taste of honey because he came in behind Larkin. So he had some heavy shoes to fill. He couldn't worry about Larkin's group. He had to make his own group famous. <laughs> so he's signing his own people. So we were, I called Capitol Records at that time as the tower turns. You know, they were just dropping artists and spitting them out. And so then by the time Sukiyaki came around, well, I'll let you get to that question. But no, <laughs> did they promote us? Yes. Did they promote us like we should have been? No. And I agree with you about Distant. I agree with that. In fact, that was something that Larkin had pinned to be the second single. Yeah, I kind of figured something must have been up because, you know, all signs pointed to, you know, more hit singles off that, if you ask me. I liked uh, you on that also. It was oh, yeah, nice track. that was great. That was, Hazel and Don wrote that. That was a funky song. Yeah. And that was a song that was great because I didn't have to play and sing. That was great. We used to do that one on the stage. Yeah, that was cool. So the second album, Do It Good, was another hit. Um, you know, did, did you feel as good about the second record or did you feel like you took another step forward with it? Oh, there was so much drama going on in the Taste of Honey by the second record. Um, I didn't feel like we had support at the company, for one. You know, after Larkin left, we never really did have that support um, until Varnell Johnson came in. He gave us a little bit more support. But it just, it just, you know, here's the, here's the deal. When you're black and you're doing pop hits, the record company doesn't know what to do with you. 
they didn't know what category to put us into. The same thing happened when the next big hit came around. What are you? Are you a pop group? Are you an R&B group? What are you? Are you disco? You're not disco because the whole album is not disco, but we got you classified disco. So when disco dies, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, that, that was their plan. But I, I could say, I had a different plan. But, you know, who's to say uh, what could have happened had we had the support that we had initially when Larkin first put Boogie out? Who's to say? But since there are no mistakes in the universe, I guess we learn the lessons we're supposed to learn along the way. And we keep going. Either way, I feel blessed. Either way. It was I a big hit, in, um, big hit in Japan. I, really I, thought, I thought that I Love You should have been a single. <sighs> Man. Now, you know what? That's another one of my favorite songs. Did you see the video on I Love You? Well, they never put it out, so I'll have to send you a copy of it. Oh, I okay. put it on the air. It was never, ever released. Oh. It was a uh, Do It Good and I Love You. They recorded it. I remember, I think it was $50,000 for two videos back then, but it was never, ever released. Mm. Don't ask me why. I, maybe because at that time it was only MTV and they weren't about to play two little black girls. <laughs> for black guys you know michael jackson i mean i don't know where where were you going to get a video played back then i'm sure there must have been some other some other uh avenues that they could have placed it but see and that's what happens when you don't have the support at the company why would you not release the video i love you it's a great video i'm going to make sure i send that to you well if it's as good as the track i'm sure it's fantastic yeah like yeah they did they did two videos do it in one day on the same shoot, do it good, and I love you. Well, as you mentioned, Jess, I'm sure it was kind of challenging for you in that, you know, in that period of time is when disco got a backlash, and if they're lumping you in that category, you know, that could be a detriment, even though you guys had so much music that was, you know, different and beyond right. disco. So, Well, we got the word. We knew when they burned those disco records. <laughs> Was that soldier fields? Was that what they? I think it was. Yeah, when they burned that, I said, "Oh Lord, we're in trouble now." <laughs> but here's what happened: You've got the Rolling Stones doing some kind of disco. I would have been mad too if I'd been a Rolling Stones fan, right? So yeah, they're gonna burn all that stuff. All their rock acts are trying to do disco. No, you guys stay in your lane. We'll stay in our lane because you already have a lane that is wide open. Disco opened another door for black artists. Because as you know, back in that time period, not a black artist made it to the pop charts and let alone to the top of the pop charts. Top, top of the pop charts. The rock groups did. So really, uh, I personally don't feel that uh, Rolling Stones or any of those rock groups should have gone into this other field. You're messing it up for us as a result of you trying to get in this field. Now our field is annihilated. They're burning the records. And I can't blame them because their rock and roll artists are now trying to do this. So uh, who knows? Who knows? You know, like I said, once again, there are no mistakes. It forces you to make other choices. Mm -hmm. I thought disco should have lasted a little longer because what it did for us and every black artist, it broke the color line. You know, because before then you had the R&B charts, which are black artists. You had the pop charts with the white artists. Unless you were fortunate enough for some of the black artists to have a big enough hit to cross over to the white artists you'll never make that chart. And that's the main chart. You know, a lot of people don't even look at the R&B chart as mattering. 
if you don't have, you say, well, what's your big hit? You say, well, number uh, number five on the pop chart. Okay, yeah, we can book you. But you say number one R&B, well, that limits you. Mm-hmm. It really does. And that's another reason I feel so blessed. It didn't have to turn out the way that it did. A Taste of Honey was number one on the R&B chart. We're number one on the disco chart. We're even number one on the um, uh, pop chart. And by Sukiyaki come around, we're number one on the easy listening. Who gets on easy listening? Not that they're going to do any of those kind of gigs, but it was still flattering to know that people appreciated what we were doing. Yeah. And and that song was on your, your third record, uh, Twice as Sweet. And yes. uh, George Duke came in um, and produced. Uh, how did that come to be? That was an incredible experience. Let me say one thing about George Duke. George Duke was the kindest man you would ever meet in your lifetime. Just a kind soul. Not only that, he had perfect pitch. I don't know whether you guys know that or not. (laughs) George Duke was incredible, but he was scared to death to produce us. I didn't know that. You know, I I, I realized that at an interview he did talking about working with the Taste of Honey. But working with him was just phenomenal. Just, just phenomenal because he's a perfectionist, and we appreciated that. He tightened up our act. Well, I see that as you know, coming upon good fortune, you know, for him to come in and do your project. You know, how did that get, get set well, up? What I mean, happened was um, Bobby Columbia, He was A and R or some position over at Capitol Records. He called George Duke, and Bobby Columbia and George Duke were going to produce the record together. Um, Bobby Columbia comes from. Three Dog Night, I think he was a drummer, and okay. he ended up being A&R at Capitol. I could have the group wrong, but I think it's Three Dog Night. We'll have to look that up. Uh, he was married to Pam Greer. I remember that. I got that right. But he had called George Duke and said, hey, because I was talking with Bobby. He said, yeah, George Duke would be great. Let's try George. And he said, fine. So we'll co-produce. I said, great. So that's what we think has happened. Everything's all set up. And it's studio day, and George gets a call from Bobby Columbia. He said, uh... I'm not going to be able to do this. Uh, you're going to have to do this project by yourself. And he said, my God, what I didn't realize is that George had never produced anyone other than jazz artists before us. Mm-hmm. He'd never sold more than 10,000 records. He's jazz artist. He was scared. Listen, <laughs> he didn't beat that. I just didn't say it. <laughs> I had no idea because I'm thinking, George, dude, why he's way up here? Oh, my God. I'm scared. He's scared. I'm scared. We had no idea that we were both just like shaking to be working with each other because I've got him on this pedestal where he belonged. I don't know where he had me, but I know I didn't belong up there where he was, not musically anyway. So that was cool. And George Duke was the only person who, well, I'll let you ask another question before I go into that. But George Duke was a very, very special man and the most talented producer I've ever worked with. Well, I've heard just nothing, you know, unfortunately I, he, he passed before I got to uh, speak with him, but I was long a fan and um, I've had, you know, guests on the show that have been in his bands. Like I just recently had Lynn Davis on who sang with him and um, everyone speaks so glowingly of him, you know, because they speak the truth, you know, they speak the truth. And when I say a kind hearted man, that's, that defines George and the talent is just, oozing but there are a lot of talented assholes out there if you know what i mean that's not george george was humble can you believe this man was humble with all this talent he has 
incredible. He would lift you up every opportunity he had. He would make you a better singer, a better performer. That's just who he was. That's just how he rolled. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.